If you don't have your own Bibles, you can look at the Bible that's in the chair or the pew. And I'd like for us to turn first, not to Revelation, but close to that, toward the back of your Bibles, uh, to Second chapter 3, beginning with verse 8. Second Peter, this is page 1019, 1019 in the uh, Pew Bible. Actually, uh, we'll start with verse one. I want to read two portions of scripture just to give some overall teaching about uh, the last day, and the formation of the new heavens and the new earth. This is now, this is verse 1 of chapter 3, page 1019. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. You should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, speaking of Genesis 1, and that by means of these, that is, by means of water, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now, I want you to notice the emphasis in both the Noahic deluge and judgment and the final judgment is not the absolute destruction of the earth. For that didn't happen in the flood. The flood merely destroyed the sin of the world and preserved the earth. And the same thing, that the emphasis of the fire is for, as he says, the judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So this is an ethical judgment, first and foremost. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed or disclosed is another way to translate that. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so the idea here is like a purification of silver or gold. A purification of the world, particularly removing sin from the world and then the creation of a new heavens and new earth, not an absolute destruction. So there is no more heaven, a new, no earth, but a recreation of the heaven and earth. 
much as there was a recreation in the day of Noah. And then if you would now turn to the very back of uh, your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21, page 1041. There are many passages in Isaiah, or several passages, that speak of the new heavens and the new earth. We just don't have time to read of them as well. But here are two major New Testament passages. <clears throat> Revelation 21. Then, John, speaking in his vision, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Then if you skip to verse 22. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there, there be anything accursed, But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Thus the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for the heritage that we have as sons and daughters of God. We thank you, Lord, that we can say, Abba, Father, and that the Father gives us the very inheritance of his own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That you, Lord Jesus, won for us not only forgiveness and acceptance with God, but favor from God, favor as Brothers of Jesus Christ, favor as sons who are fellow heirs with Jesus Christ, both men and women now made official sons and heirs. Lord, that 
you pour out eternal blessing, that you renew us in that final day completely. We have new bodies made into the likeness of Christ. All sin is removed, all pain, all brokenness in relationship. Lord, the whole creation is renewed. And we live in that new heaven and new earth forever and ever reigning with Jesus Christ. Lord, bless us that we will fix our hope upon that day when Jesus comes for his people, when Jesus renews all things, when in Paul's words, all things will be restored and all things find their completion and their oneness united under Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, we thank you that this is our glorious destiny. May it affect how we live every day of our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen. In a book that was uh, given me a week or so ago by Wayne Martindale, he talks a lot about uh, C.S. Lewis. In fact, it's, the whole thing is about C.S. Lewis's view of heaven. But he relates several ideas that I think we can all identify with uh, of how many times for us the problem with heaven. And we've talked about this already in our our series talking about the afterlife, about the resurrection and about heaven, that for children, it's pretty hard on them to think about heaven because they'll hear basically from preachers and from snippets that they get from scripture that heaven is basically one long worship service. And there's no roast beef at the end of it. And there's no hope for ever getting to go keep the nursery. (laughs) It's just one worship service. And many times those are not very interesting worship services that they sit through. And so, as we've said before, for many people, the choice is between that kind of agony versus the agony of hell. Which do you pick? The boredom of a cloud Doing nothing for eternity or suffering in hell. And of course, many say, I would rather be with my friends at least, you know, and maybe we can do something, whatever. Well, that's because of a terrible misconception of of heaven and of the new heavens and the new earth. Most people surveyed in the United States, two thirds believe that we will never have bodies again once we die. That's the common view, that that's it. We're broke free from our bodies and whatever life we have as spirit, that's it. Whether we have a life or not. There's very little understanding about the final resurrection from the dead. The final creation of heaven, a new heavens and a new earth. And the fact that we will live on a renewed earth forever and ever. That is the hope of the scriptures. That is what the scriptures speak about in the main, as we've talked about. The scriptures do not talk much about what we would call the disembodied state. Death tears us from ourselves. We are body and we are spirit. Darwin, the body goes into the ground. Darwin, the spirit goes to be with Christ. It's good that I go to be with Christ. Praise his name that I go to be with Christ and I'm a spirit made perfect. But it's not good that Darwin is torn from Darwin. Okay, 
that has to be fixed. That has to be renewed. There has to be resurrection for we are body, spirit beings. We are not angels. We are not animals. We are human beings, unique, glorious beings made in the image of God, made to live forever and ever, body and spirit renewed, whole and perfect and glorious. And we've been made for this earth. And even in his salvation, the Lord renews not only us, but renews the whole of the earth. So we saw in Romans 8 in our study that the whole earth even awaits the revelation of the children of God. The whole world is standing on tiptoe, awaiting our renewal and our glorified state because that takes the whole earth into that glorified state. So our uh, future is bound up with or the, the creation's future is bound up with us and We cannot think of our final salvation apart from this whole renewal of ourselves and of the the universe. So as we talk about building up our hope, we have to have a clear picture of what that is, something that we can look to and identify with as human beings, something that really is set forth in the scripture that acknowledges who we are as human beings. So I'm going to talk about just two things and then make uh, some application. The first is that, uh, as as I've already introduced, we bear in mind that is a a renewed body in a renewed universe, a renewed body in a renewed universe. And then I want to speak to some other R's that is rest and reign. What does it mean to rest in heaven? But how does that connected with our reign in heaven? And it's very important, I think, for us to understand the glorious responsibilities and the ongoing labor and work and glory that is ours in the new heavens and the new earth. Well, first of all, uh, our renewed bodies and renewed universe. I won't spend a lot of time on this because we have talked about it some. But uh, remember that our bodies will be made exactly like the glorious body of Jesus Christ, as it says in the end of Philippians three, uh, He makes our bodies, our humble bodies, he conforms them to the body of his glory. So you can say whatever the body of Christ, whatever the glory and power of that body as a human being, that is what we will be. Nothing less than the glorified body of Christ. Always bear in mind that his taking on a body Dying in our place and being resurrected was to take our humanity to that point. It wasn't for him. He is God eternal. But it was to enter into our humanity and change the future of our humanity so that we one day would be brought to that condition of a glorified body. And I love what is said by none other than uh, Joni Erickson Tata, and of course, most of you know, she's been paralyzed for years due to a diving accident. She might be more interested than some in the resurrection of the body. In her book, Heaven, Your Real Home, she suggests the difficulty of imagining what our new bodies will be like. Trying to understand what our bodies will be like in heaven is much like expecting an acorn to understand his destiny of roots, Bark, branches and leaves 
or to use our illustration from a couple of weeks ago, or asking a caterpillar to appreciate flying or a peach pit to fathom being fragrant (laughs) or a coconut to grasp what it means to sway in the ocean breeze. Our eternal bodies will be so grand, so glorious that we can only catch a fleeting glimpse of the splendor to come. I think of uh, what computers were, as I understand, in the 50s and maybe even later. But they would fill up a room, fill up a room, maybe weighing several tons. And they would have tubes that would blow out regularly. And their computing power was minuscule. It didn't even approach what you can hold in your hand now. So you think of just the change of computers, you know, in a few years in this earth. There's continuity. It's still a computer. Your body's still a body, but it has a power and an elegance and a glory and ability that we cannot conceive. Just like if you told them, do you know that you'll be able to hold in your hand something that's thousands of times stronger than this thing that fills a room? <laughs> Can't imagine it. Can't imagine it. Well, a renewed body. And we can only try to grasp certain details. Perhaps Jesus' ability to move from place to place. Perhaps his ability to move within a room and out. Uh, Hugh Ross, the astrophysicist, posits that perhaps we'll live in several dimensions that will enable us to move in ways that we never could imagine. The possibilities are beyond our scope. But you see, we can trust in a God who has declared that he is making all things new and that he will make us glorious. But also the new heavens and the new earth that are clearly created, both in Second Peter, this is mentioned, and in, in Revelation chapter 1. And in the case of Second Peter, you see that the flood brought a kind of death and resurrection to the world. Uh, the, the flood was a decreation, so to speak. Uh, going back to original creation and then the water subsiding again, just like in Genesis one, there were the waters covering the earth and then the dry land was formed. So this was a recreation of the world. It was not meant to destroy the world. In fact, there was even the promise to the world with the rainbow of his care of it. And so that's the analogy that we see in second Peter, that whatever the fire is, and it seems to be primarily ethical, and even when originally in the, New, in the King James, there was the word that our works would be burnt up. But better trans, uh, manuscripts have pointed to the better word used, the better transcripts, that these things will be discovered. That is, there's a kind of trying of the works of this world. And there is even the idea that perhaps many of the works of the things that have manifested the glory of God in this world will pass into the new world. You have some of that thought and some of the interpretation uh, here in Revelation 21 that the kings and nations will bring the glory and honor into the city. That's one possible interpretation of what will happen as the glory of this world is cleansed and perhaps passes into and then is made even larger in that final world. If that's not the case, if we say in some case all the works of this world, all the architecture and art and technology 
has a fresh start, then no doubt in the new world that these things that so reflect the honor of God and so reflect the glory of God and our image of God would be carried on on a level that we simply cannot imagine. So what we've got to understand is that when we go to heaven, in a sense, it's a temporary stay in heaven. It's what theologians call, of course, the intermediate state, not our final state. And so the Christian hope is not just that we depart with our loved ones to go be with Jesus. That really is not the emphasis in the New Testament. The emphasis is Jesus coming with those spirits and resurrecting his people and creating a new heavens and new earth so that our departure from this world we must think of as Whitmer says, the first leg of a journey that is round trip. Okay, so in a real sense, it's more accurate to say, you know, about heaven, that is the disembodied state. I'm just passing through because that really is the case. You're just passing through that state in which you're going to be disembodied to the final state when you will be resurrected body and soul in the new heavens and the new earth. Some of our language and hymns really speak in a way that perhaps is not accurate in terms of Scripture. And interestingly, as we see in Revelation 21 and the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, that is heaven, comes down to us. And we have these words in verse three. The dwelling of God is with men. He will live with them. In fact, three times it says he is with us. This is Emmanuel indeed. God with us. The final thing of God coming to live with us forever. He came to walk with Adam and he came to speak to Abram and then he came and dwelled in the tabernacle in the uh, temple. And then he came in the flesh of Christ and he dwells in us and we're the temple of God through the Holy Spirit. But then the whole world becomes the temple of God forever as it's called. And the light is from God and from the Lamb. This world becomes his whole sanctuary and we reign with him forever and ever. So he comes to remove sin from our lives, but he comes to save planet Earth in total, inside and out, top to bottom. It's a full renovation project, turnkey operation that God will bring about in that day. And that is what we look forward to. And it redefines this creation. It redefines how we look at every part of this world, not as something that's unimportant, but as something that is ultimately very important because God will redeem it all. But then also, just briefly, let me mention in these with these renewed bodies and this renewed universe Many times the question is, well, what will we be like? What, what will we do? Do we sit on clouds and do nothing for the rest of our lives? Well, you have this little phrase uh, at the end of our passage that we read in chapter 22 and verse 5. They will reign forever and ever. And you see in the passage where Jesus is talking about judgment and talking about the rewards of heaven, how if you've been responsible with a little, then you'll be responsible with much more. And the indication is that you have had responsibility and service in some wonderful way, but ultimately small way on this world. And then you will be given far larger capacity to do a far larger thing. 
<laughs> I love what Martindale says. He posits this example. You wash dishes here on earth and you did a great job. Now, I want you to make a star. <laughs> oh, OK. <laughs> That's a different thing. And you'll know how to do it. You'll know how to get the furnace going. You'll know how to get the fusion started. Uh, and then after you do that, a bunch of you are going to get together and you're going to make a constellation. All right. That sounds good. <laughs> now, he's throwing that out just to show that. There is true responsibility. Reigning means the full incorporation of all of our capacity as human beings, all of our creativity, all of our abilities in every area. There's no reason to think that the arts will not flourish in a way we never could imagine, that technology will not flourish in a way we never could imagine. No doubt our bodies will be so powerful that some technologies will not even be needed. But who knows what will happen in that day? I remember uh, one of the uh, Star Trek movies where they had gone to this planet in which people's DNA was renewed regularly so that they lived almost endlessly. And they were talking to this, uh, they walking by and they saw this tapestry and it was just gorgeous, breathtaking, detailed. Just couldn't imagine that somebody, and they said, this is the most beautiful thing we've ever seen, this tapestry. Who, who, who did this? And they kind of were looking around and said, well, that's, that's one of our uh, trainees. I said, What? Yeah, they've been in training. They've been apprentices for 50 years. And uh, perhaps in about 20 more years, they'll become a true artisan. And you kind of get a picture of what would it be like, you know, if there was this amount of time. With unlimited time, without the crippling effects of sin, without the constant distractions of the curse, with greatly expanded capacities of mind and body, with joyful focus and energy, constantly lost in the wonder of what we're doing, like the sled dogs that were described by one book I was reading recently. They said, as you walk by the row of sled dogs, they were just yelping and biting almost to get to go. And, and if another sled dog was chosen, they would nip at his feet as he walked by because he was going to get to pull the sled that day. And they just and then when they got to the sled, they said, the thing you do, you don't ever leave your sled alone, because if you do, they're gone. They'll be 100 miles down the road. <laughs> they don't care if you're on there or not. They're going to move it. You know, they're going. And the joy that these dogs had at this rigorous work what an analogy to the way we are made for the work and the labor and the glory of that day. Like somebody totally lost in a hobby they just can't get enough of. But that's the labor and the glory of our work. And then imagine that we're working in concert with one another without jealousy or attack or undermining one another, but finding constant delight and satisfaction in one another's fellowship and in one another's contributions. What will be the cultural technological effect of that in the new heavens and the new earth? What will be the greater work and responsibility that we will have? And you can just imagine the difference between somebody a thousand years ago suddenly coming into to our day. I've imagined driving down the highway sometimes 70 miles an hour at night in a city what would happen if somebody from a thousand years ago was just plopped in the seat next to me? Of course, they'd be scared to death going 70 miles an hour. 
but lights and sound coming out and this city they could hardly imagine. They couldn't even imagine what's going on. It would be such a bizarre thing. And yet God is talking about a whole new creation of heaven and earth that we will enjoy forever and ever. We can't conceive of it. We can't conceive of it. But he's bringing it about for our glory. Now, just to close with some uh, an application. Here's the basic application I want to set before you. You and I must, therefore, distinguish between the world as the world opposed to God and the world as it is God's creation. See what I'm saying? For instance, First John 2 says, do not love the world or the things of the world. But then it describes what are those things? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the sinful pride of life. First John 2, 15 and 16 or through 17. You see, he's not saying don't love his creation. Don't love culture. He's saying don't love the sin of the world. For Psalm 19 calls upon us to rejoice in this creation. Psalm 104 is a whole psalm rejoicing in God's creation. So we are commanded to rejoice in his creation. In fact, Romans 1 says the root of all sin is that we wouldn't recognize God in creation. And we wouldn't delight in him in creation. So we're to run from sin, but stay plugged into his creation. And when Peter says that we are aliens and strangers in this world, he's not saying we're aliens and strangers in creation. Well, we're the rightful rulers of creation made to rule this creation. The problem is that we are pilgrims and aliens in terms of sin. That's why Peter says in chapter one, abstain from sinful desires or in Philippians three, when he says our citizenship is in heaven, he speaks of others whose God is their belly and who are enemies of the cross. So the contrast is our citizenship is among the people of God and the future new heavens and the earth not being opposed to this world of this creation And even in Colossians three, when it says set your minds on things above, not on things on the earth. If you go past that and read the rest of the chapter, he talks about love. He talks about not being angry with one another and not being sexually immoral. It's all about this world and how to live in this world. So it's not opposed to the earth as living here as a place, but it's opposed. Set your mind on the things of Christ, the things of the heavenlies, things that are pure and holy and good. We we must stay involved in this planet and model godly lives so that Christ's heavenly kingdom is manifested through us. So I want to say two things. On the one hand, surely we must not idolize creation. That is that your desire and your joy in life goes no further than this creation itself. Whether you're talking about uh, sex or entertainment or power or sports or work or whatever it might be. And your desires don't go ultimately to embrace Christ himself and God himself who has made it all. That is to idolize this creation. It's to bow down to this creation and say, you are my God. You, in you I find satisfaction. 
Because we can find no satisfaction ultimately in this world. We can find no satisfaction in this creation. It always leads us to embrace God. And then to put him at the center of all the activities of our life. So that all the activities of our life, whether it's Bible study or it's marriage or it's putting in a row of azaleas or it's playing golf or it's working in whatever capacity God gives you, whether you're meeting neighbors, you're on a board for the school or you're on vacation in the Northeast. Every single part of life is to live, is to be done for the glory of God in relationship to God and is a part of your love of God. And if he is not the center of all and the goal of all and that all pleasure points to your ultimate pleasure in him and enjoyment of him, you're idolizing this world and you are hating God. But on the other hand, and I'm going to invent a word, don't Gnosticize this world. Don't have this world be something in itself that is evil, that this world is not good and that we are abandoning this world, that we are turning our backs upon this creation, that we are even washing our hands clean, perhaps of political problems that are our country is facing or with neighborhoods in this area that need the grace of God, people in our uh, our very community that need the grace of God. It means that there is nothing unimportant in this world to us. It means that the that Christians, if he's the Lord of our lives, that it means that not it doesn't mean that everything else then is second rate, that God is the Lord and then everything else is second rate. It means that, therefore, all activities are opportunities to extend the kingdom of God. It's not that God is here and everything else is way below, but God's in the center of everything. So if God has first place, we must re- remain active in every other area of life to bring our relationship to God to that area of life. So our relationship with him manifests itself and proves itself in every area of existence because he's number one. Everything else does matter. It's not enough to love God more than the world. You will also love the world for the sake of God. The God who's more important than anything in the world sends us into the world to transform it for him. Nothing must be elevated to his level. That's true. But nothing can be dismissed. There's not an unimportant part of your life. And there's not an unimportant part of this world to which the kingdom of God cannot extend itself. And that can mean in every encounter you have with every person. And I love the image that Whitmer gives here of bringing shalom, wholeness, peace. Peace is... Uh, basically wholeness, universal flourishing and delight, the way things ought to be. And the way he puts it, I like it. He says, each of us, by God's grace, because God is more important than everything, because he's going to redeem his whole creation, we can bring a slice of shalom. I like that little phrase, a slice of shalom to everything that we touch. You, by God's grace, have a kind of Midas touch in this world because you're the light of the world. And you can bring the gold of someone who has peace with God to everything you do in this world. 
to every class you take, to every part of your job in terms of excellence and diligence, to every relationship you have. Everything is important because it is important to the God that made it and will redeem it. But shalom, this peace begins as we we begin ourselves with the death of Jesus Christ. It is peace first with God only because Christ has died for sins in our place. Then we have this blessed opportunity as sinful and broken and messed up as we are to come to God through Jesus Christ to have absolute shalom and wholeness and peace with God and then to begin experiencing this peace in our own hearts, then begin to experiencing peace with each other and then beginning to push that shalom out to other people in our community. That's why I'm so thrilled that we're seeking to bring shalom to the pregnancy center down there. And you dear ladies are down there working with these girls and talking to them about what's going on in their bodies and seeking for them to save the life of their children. You're spreading shalom in this world. And the reason we've had Good News Club every week last year during school, and now we're having Kids Hope, a mentoring program for kids that are, that are in trouble And hopefully we'll have 10 or 15 of you and more in the future who are meeting with kids every week to to do what? To bring shalom to our community. What a glorious opportunity you have today, this afternoon. How's it going to manifest itself with your friends? How's it going to manifest itself with your responsibilities? Everything is gloriously important because brothers and sisters, We're going to have new bodies and a new heaven and a new earth. There's nothing that is unimportant in this world. Praise God. Let us pray.